Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, I was thinking the last time I was here actually was, you know, it was really strange because it was, uh, it was an anniversary of 9-11 that happened on Sunday, and it was uh, 2016. And I thought, man, has it been that long? Man, and then, then I got to thinking, you know how you meet people and you say to them, uh, well, you know, I haven't seen you in, you know, five years. No, no, it's been 10 years. 10 years? Has it been 10 years? Yeah, yeah. Is that going to happen in eternity? You know, are we going to see each other and say, hey, I haven't seen you in like a million and a half years. No, no, that's actually five million years. Five million years? Has it been five million years? You don't look a day older, too. That's going to be great, too. You know? Well, my wife and I and Stephanie, yes, she is spicy. I like that pastor said that. She's definitely spicy. Um, I'm the less of the spicy, too, so you can imagine how spicy she is, right? And uh, Stephanie, I, I say that only God can put a Puerto Rican from the Bronx and a Jew from Israel and make it work for 30, we've been married 33 years now. So uh, yesterday was uh, Steph's birthday. So um, where to begin? Let me see. Well, let's, uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. So I guess it's good to read John chapter 3. That sounds good, right? So now... There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How could a, born, how could a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. So let's leave it there. Now, just the context of this, uh, a lot of times people point out that uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And it could be, they think it could be fear, apprehension on Nicodemus's part to be seen publicly with him. That's possible. We we really don't know. It doesn't doesn't say. The scripture doesn't tell us. It also is possible that Nicodemus came to him at night because it was the only time to get to see Jesus uh, privately, you know, have a private audience with him because the crowds would, would have been gathered around him. So we really don't know. Uh, but it could be apprehension. Um, there was a delegation that was sent out by the leadership of the Sanhedrin. Now you have to remember that Nicodemus was among the 71 uh, leaders of the Sanhedrin. And so they sent, they sent this delegation out to John, and John instructs them that he's not the Messiah. They want to know whenever anything noteworthy was going on, spiritually, religiously, the Sanhedrin would send out a delegation uh, to find out what's going on. They, you know, they were the heads, and they were the leaders, and they wanted to know. They wanted their fingers in it. They wanted to know what's going on. So this is not unusual. So John says to this delegation that the Sanhedrin sent out that he's not the Messiah, and he's but he's the one who's going to be revealing the Messiah. And John testifies that Jesus is this Messiah. Now, think about this, because Nicodemus would have been present either at the sending of this delegation out, or he would have been present when they came back to report. He may have been present both times for the uh, sending out and the report, but definitely he would have got a report, you know, like a written report or some kind of report somewhere along the line, okay? So just keep that in mind. Now, here's what John says. So John 1.19 says, now, when, uh, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So the Jews of Jerusalem is the Nicodemus's, uh, the Sanhedrin. And when it says, you know, the book of John, when, it's, when, it, uses the word, when it uses the word Jews, you have to realize that 
it's using it in three ways, three possible ways, depending on the context. In this case, it's the, it's, it says the Jews of Jerusalem, it means the leadership, and we, this is clear from the context. Other times, it could be uh, Jews from Judea were called Jews, as opposed to the Galilean Jews. So the word Judea means the land of the Jews. And other times, the word Jews means uh, the people, just the people in general. So it depends on the context. In this case, the Jews, when the Jews of Jerusalem means the leadership. So John, finally in verse 22, it says, Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who sent them? The Sanhedrin. What do you say about yourself? John replies, the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophets? Because that's what he said. I'm kind of skipping around a little bit. And he says, John says to him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So John is pointing to Jesus and not to himself. And then the delegation would take this report back to the Sanhedrin. Back, and Nicodemus, again, was part of the Sanhedrin. So here they are. In, in, this is in the desert in Judea. That's where they went to meet John, to see what John was doing, right? Asking questions. So this is early on in the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry and also Jesus' ministry. And Nicodemus would have received these reports and he would have... Um, uh, th these claims that John was making would have been taken back to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, this is the second thing that happened before this meeting with Nicodemus, and that is John uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. It says, In the temple courts, so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and dove, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, uh, sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who he sold, uh, to those who sold doves, he said, "Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market?" Now this is the Passover season in Jerusalem, and all Jewish people were supposed to come into Jerusalem during Passover. It was one of the three pilgrimage feasts, right? So everybody was going to be there. So Nicodemus may have been; he could have either witnessed. Jesus doing this, you know, with the cords. Now, so much, so, so much for the mild and meek Jesus, right? The guy takes cords and starts whipping, <laughs> whipping things around, and everybody's running away. And so Jesus is overthrowing these temples in Jerusalem, so Nicodemus would have been privy for this. And the reason Jesus did this is because of um, the situation uh, that was a very corrupt one at the time. The Sadducees, who were, uh, were in charge of the temple, uh, were all were corrupt. I shouldn't say they were all corrupt, but the leadership was corrupt. And there was a lot of tension between the Sadducees and Pharisees for that reason. You know, uh, what happened was actually the Pharisees mockingly called the temporal area the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest. And uh, the, uh, the Pharisees and the people also knew that this was, uh, there was a corruption going on. It was kind of a racket going on. And what would happen is you had to come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, celebrate these different feasts. And so the high priest, Annas, set it up so that when you came to Jerusalem, if you had an animal that you bought for a sacrifice, his people, the money changers and the uh, animal sellers, would make sure when they inspect your animal, they would make sure to find a blemish on it and sell uh, another, their, one of their animals to you at an exorbitant rate. 
And the same thing with the money changes. You couldn't, you know, the half shekel was due uh, in Jerusalem at this time, so everybody was supposed to bring a half shekel, but it, you couldn't bring, um, you know, Roman coinage because it had the image of Caesar, false god. So you had to exchange it for temple currency. So again, the money changers uh, would, uh, would sell it to you, but at an exorbitant rate. You know, we've all been to the airport where they exchange money and, and they, they get 4% interest. Well, this was a lot more than that. And then Annas and his family would get a cut of this. So there was corruption going on, and that's why Jesus did this. So um, basically, basically what happened was that John's t- Jesus was confirming John's testimony that he's the Messiah. By chasing these money changers and these animal sellers around, out, he was rebuking the leadership of Israel. That's what he was doing. By overturning these tables, it was a public declaration that he was the Messiah because he took control over his father's house, right? And the Jewish leadership at that time uh, took the action of turning over these tables as a sign that Jesus was declaring his Messiahship. So you have to understand that's what was going on there. And then you could see this by their question. The Jewish leadership asked, John 2.18 says, Then the Jews demanded of him, and again, this is Jewish leadership. Remember I said the the word Jews could be used as leadership, or it could be the people, or it could be people from Judea, Jews from Judea. This is the Jewish leadership. They were asking, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove your authority to do this? So they recognized what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I'm the Messiah by doing this. And the conflict was, uh, this conflict between the leadership and Jesus happened swiftly and it happened decisively and it happened early on. And essentially, Jesus was almost picking a fight. You know, I was raised in a Jewish tradition. I didn't know anything about this. The first time I opened up the New Testament uh, was after I came to faith. I wouldn't open up a New Testament before because I thought it had to do with another God, you know, a false God. As a Jew, I'm not allowed to believe in any other gods, only the God of Israel. And I kind of assumed that this is not the God of Israel. You know, it just doesn't sound, it didn't sound like it. So this is the first time I'm reading it. I'm, <laughs> I come to faith, Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm reading through these things. And I remember thinking, why would Jesus overturn the temple? I mean, that seems like really kind of uh, extreme. Why don't you just come up to the people and say, hey, look, let's talk, okay? You know, you got to stop this, you know? That was naive. I, I never said I was the brightest chaplain in the world, okay? It's like, you know. So... Later on, as I was reading this and understanding, it's just like uh, the analogy is if you, if, you, if you have your parents' house and your parents' home and someone is mistreating your dad <clears throat> or disrespecting uh, the house itself, you're not going to mince words with them. You're not going to come up with them and say, listen, uh, you've got to understand. No, no, you're going to call the cops. Or you're going to do something really drastic to meet the situation with an appropriate, uh, strong response. And that's what Jesus was doing here. So he didn't mince, mince words with them. Uh, for, this was his dad's house, his father's house. <clears throat> but to answer the leadership's question, by what authority did Jesus overthrow the tables? Jesus performed miracles at the temple during the time of the Passover. So that's what he did. So he was showing that this is by God's authority through these miracles. And again, Passover was one of these pilgrimage holidays, so Jewish people would have been coming in from all over Israel, but also all over the world. So when they would see these miracles happening, you know, we didn't have internet in those days, you know, this, was, uh, this wasn't there. And what he would do is he would, um, <coughs> uh, people from, who came in from Jerusalem um, uh, all this time, that was the internet. So they would tell <coughs> others when they went back home what was going on. 
and they found out that there's someone who's claiming to be the Messiah who's doing bona fide miracles. Okay, so now in John 2.23, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Since Nicodemus was in Jerusalem during this time, during the Passover, he either witnessed uh, Jesus performing miracles with his own eyes, or, or he had eyewitness accounts from reliable people. You know, and it, this was not the kind of miracles that, you know, sometimes you go to a, you listen on radio or something, and somebody says, I had a backache, and then uh, my backache's gone, and, you know, I went to a church. Uh, you know, backaches do come and go. We're talking about withered hands. We're talking about things that are not physically possible. A withered hand, if you ever saw anyone with a withered hand, uh, it's just kind of kind of limp and lying there. It's very thin and kind of purpley sometimes. And if it becomes regular usable, you know, in an instant, that's a miracle. You know, that's, that's a un, a bona fide, unquestionable miracle. That's the type of stuff that Jesus uh, was doing. So at this point, he was verifying uh, his position, his position as the Messiah. And the purpose at this time was to bring the nation to the point of decision. The nation would have to accept him or reject him as the Messiah. So he was actually offering the kingdom to Israel. Okay? And in order for Jesus to set up the kingdom, the prerequisite is that the nation of Israel has to accept the Messiah. And we see this in uh, Matthew 23:39. Matthew 23:39. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, uh, Matthew 23:36-39. And this is at the very end of his ministry. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and he says, "I tell you the truth, all this will come on this generation, meaning his generation." And he's talking about all the woes of the nation uh, that's going to experience it. <coughs> They're going to, the Romans are going to come in, sack, uh, sack Jerusalem, and uh, take the Jews into captivity. It was a terrible time. And Jesus says of the future, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who uh, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, your house meaning the temple. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at the end of his earthly ministry, when both the leadership as well as the people have fully rejected him, Jesus stated that the condition of his return is that the nation of Israel repents and accepts him as the Messiah, as a true Jewish Messiah. You know, when it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and you see this in the triumphal entrance. Remember when Jesus did the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem? Um, people were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's not just something you say to your best friend or your favorite uncle, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's something you say specifically to the Messiah. Uh, it's from a Messianic psalm. So they were declaring him to be the Messiah. So he's saying here, the nation is not going to see them, him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But at this early stage, they have not rejected him yet. They will in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. So now we're in the eye of the storm at this point, and Nicodemus meets with Jesus in John chapter 3. And this is the early point of his ministry before the leadership rejects him, before the nation rejects him. And now Nicodemus is doing kind of a reconnaissance mission uh, he wanted to speak with Jesus uh, privately. Now, it's possible he was doing it without the uh, knowledge and consent or anything of the Sanhedrin. It's also possible he had some of the people in the Sanhedrin kind of knew, and he was just going to go in and, and ask this guy a few questions, you know. So we don't know. So that's where we come to verse 1. 
There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus acknowledged that the signs were a miracle from God. Okay, signs were a miracle from God. The signs that he was doing specifically at the Passover, at the feast. Uh, now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and a lot of times if you have one-word description of people or organizations or movements, it tells you a lot about them. Uh, you know, like a Calvinist is not an Arminian. I mean, a Calvinist, you know, there's a certain set of beliefs there. Arminian has another set of beliefs, and uh, Presbyterian is distinct from Lutheran. So certain theological doctrines that distinguish the Pharisees from, let's say, the Sadducees, <clears throat> the Essenes, the Zealots of his day. So to be a Pharisee meant something. It meant they, cert they had certain beliefs. Now, one of the beliefs that they had, and this is a core tenet of Phariseeism, is that uh, all of Israel, every Jewish person, had a place in the world to come. I got bad news for anyone who believes that. That was not the case. <laughs> and conversely, also, the Pharisees believed that none of Israel would be sent to Gehenna, be sent to hell, Okay. I was told in Hebrew school, I was actually told that a Jew can only go to hell for 11 months, and then you're, you graduate, you're out. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of did the thing in my head. I was like, well, some of those sins, 11 months, you know, uh, maybe it's worth it. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but um, I don't know where they got in 11 months, but it's in the Talmud somewhere. It's in the Jewish writings. But. So now this is, this is their logic. This is based on the covenant that God made with Abraham, because that covenant was by grace, <clears throat> and their reasoning was is that this gracious covenant relationship automatically extended to all of Israel. In this way, all of Israel would be saved in that way. Every Jew would have a relationship with God or enter into the kingdom. And this was by extension through Abraham's relationship with God. And this is why we see the Pharisees had that mantra. Whenever Jesus or John criticized them, uh, their doctrines, their teachings, they always pointed to, hey, we're Abraham's children. Right? That's, that was their cover story, because they believed that we're, going to, we're, we're okay, we're in. The element that's missing is that in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is such a short sentence in, in the book of Genesis, in the book of beginnings, but it's such an important one. Abraham believed the Lord, and, and he, God, credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness. This credit system did not, for lack of a better term, did not extend beyond the person of Abraham. In other words, Abraham's son Isaac was not credited with righteousness because Abraham believed. Abraham's son Isaac had to come to faith, come to belief on his own for, for God to credit him with Isaac's righteousness, right? And we, we know that. We understand that. So every individual has to do that uh, to, uh, uh, to, to believe in God for them to be credited with righteousness, Right? But the Pharisees didn't see it that way. Anyone born of a Jew, uh, born a Jew, was automatically given credit uh, with, uh, of right standing with God through the patriarch, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how they looked at it. And in some, in some circles, that's actually in the religious, more orthodox circles, it's still kind of looked that way. And what we have uh, modern day is, you know, the, the Sadducees ran the temple, and the Pharisees kind of had ran the teachings, you know, the doctrines. And of course, there were controversies between them, but the bottom line is, is that when the uh, temple was destroyed, the, Sadducee, the body of Sadducee literature was lost, 
and all we know about the Sadducees was whatever the Pharisees wrote about them. And you know, you know, when your enemy is writing your biography, it's not you know you're not going to get a complete, you know, <laughs> totally unbiased picture. But that's that's how. But there was corruption. But there was corruption on both sides. That's the one thing being you know what's hard about being Jewish. It's like it tells you the story of every corruption in your history is right here for the whole world to see. You think it's easy being Jewish? This is like, you know. And the truth of the matter is, I comfort myself this way. I say, you know, if God chose the Irish or he chose the Nigerians or he chose the British or he chose the Ro- whoever he chose, we're all sinners. We all would have done the same stupid thing, you know, right? I mean, could you imagine if you're an Irishman and God chose the Irish to bring the Messiah into the world and the Irish Messiah says, before Murphy was, I am. You'd pick up your shillelagh and start hitting the guy. What are you talking about? We saw you in the playground when you were five. What are you talking about? You're claiming to be God, the God of the universe? So um, every nation would have done this. And actually, every nation would have had to do this. That's another sermon. I'm going into a whole other sermon now. Because Christ had to die for our sins. The Messiah had to die for our sins. Okay. Uh, where was I? <laughs> before, I before I so rudely interrupted myself. <laughs> um, now you know why my wife is spicy. You know, it's like, married to me. It's like, it's like being married to, uh, I don't know what. Um, Gentiles had, <laughs> I don't know if you know, Rodney Dangerfield. I mentioned this last night. You know Rodney Dangerfield's real name, his birth name? Jacob Cohen. My name's Jacob Cohen. So that's what she's married to. Okay, I digress. Um, and just to let you know, the, the Sadducees, or rather the Pharisees, did not... Uh, uh, completely dismissed the Gentiles. It's not like all oh, Gentiles go to hell, all Jews go to heaven. It wasn't like that. The Gentiles, if they fo- followed the covenant of Noah, that's you know, the covenant of Noah in, in Genesis 9, or if they converted to Judaism, they would also be ensured to have a place for themselves in the world to come. So you could stay a Gentile and you can kind of follow these Noahic rules and you're going to be okay, but, uh, the, the, but the Pharisees thought the Jewish people would have a higher place and then, of course, they would have the highest place in the kingdom because they were really following the rules uh, stringently. So that's, that's how they thought of it. Now, being a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have believed this doctrine, which was so important to Pharisee teachings, that all Jews are part of the next world, right? Uh, and it's taught even that if there was some kind of bureaucratic mix-up and some Jewish person was sent to Gehenna, to hell, accidentally, Abraham is standing at the gates of hell to make sure he doesn't go in. Right, that's how. That's a, that's one of the things. So it's kind of funny. Now there were some exceptions to this. Just to let you know, just, uh, if a Jewish person denied, according to the Pharisee, uh, that the resurrection is intimated in the Torah, not if they, they could deny that there's a resurrection, they, that's okay, but they cannot deny that there's a re- resurrection is intimated in the Torah. If they denied it, then they they lost their place in the new world. Uh, if they denied the Torah is from heaven, they would lose their place in the new world. If they're atheists. Uh, if they were uncircumcised, they would lose their place. And later on, about 90 AD, there was another group called the Menim who were added to this list of Jews who would not go to heaven. You know who the Menim were? Jews who believed in Jesus. Uh, they were added later on. So we got, we got the add-on, you know. Okay, now, <clears throat> now it's so important to understand that Nicodemus' assumptions of Pharisees is that all Jewish people, with some exceptions, rare exceptions, were heading for the kingdom of God. In the context, this is the context we're dealing with. So he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. No one can do these, perform these miraculous signs unless you're doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus was off to a good start, considering uh, he would have heard how John the Baptist condemned his own doctrines, the Pharisees and his doctrines, right? Um, 
And yet he was open enough to come to Jesus and, and see uh, what Jesus had to say. He was open to correction, in other words. Uh, and this was not a minor doctrine. This wasn't like what size baptismal we should have. You know, 10 feet by 10 feet or 5 feet by 10 feet. No, no, we're talking about a major doctrine. So in reply uh, to Nicodemus' statement uh, that no one can perform these miracles without being from God, Jesus cut to the chase. Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus is from God. And in reply, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now look at Nicodemus' remark. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. The question that Nicodemus asked is often misunderstood. You know, Nicodemus didn't ask, how could a person be born? Or how could a person be born again? He was more specific. He said, how can a man be born when he's old? So it's a little bit different. If Nicodemus never heard the concept of being born again, I don't think he would have asked this question. I think he would have asked, how can a man be born again? I never heard such a thing. Born again, not even on the radar screen. What are you talking about? He didn't ask that. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus was familiar with the term born again, which is why the issue for Nicodemus was his own senior years, uh, his, own, his own advanced years. Uh, what does that have to do with, his, uh, with a new birth, uh, being born again? The answer lies in the fact that the term born again was commonly used in Pharisaic writings. Nicodemus' question reveals that he didn't understand how a person could be born anew or born again at this stage because Pharisaic teachings, there are rites of passage in which a person was called born again. And Nicodemus would have filled four of these. There are six of them. So here are the six ways a person could be born again. One is, and this is at the time of Christ and before, one is if a Gentile converts to Judaism, they are said to be born again when they complete the process. They're born again. Another one is when a Jew is crowned king, they were considered born again. Now Nicodemus would not have fit into the first two categories because uh, he was... um, he was not a Gentile, he was a Jew, so he didn't have to become born again as a Gentile, becoming a Jew. And the second thing is, is that he was not from the line of uh, David, there's no indication he could have been king. So that excludes those two. So it didn't count towards Nicodemus, it counted towards other people. Now here are the other four ways of the six that counted towards Nicodemus. The first one, you could be born again, or you would be born again, when a boy is 13 years old and becomes a man, he's said to be born again. That's a bar mitzvah. Right? And bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Before you're 13, the idea is you're responsible for your own sins. And when you're 13, uh, your parents are responsible for your sins, rather, before 13. After you're 13, you're responsible for your own sins. Right? For me, that was not good news. You know, I was like, when I turned 13, I was like, oh. So when a, when a Jewish uh, boy became 13, he was considered born again. Another one is when a man got married. According to the Pharisees, you were born again. So now a Pharisee could be single. There were other Pharisees who were single. But since Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, one of the uh, prerequisites that uh, he had to become uh, a member of the Sanhedrin is you had to be married. You could not be single and be a member of the Sanhedrin. That's how we know that Nicodemus was, uh, uh, was a married man. So, so he was bar mitzvahed. He was born again. He was born again when he got married. He was born again when he, what did I say, bar mitzvahed? Uh, got married. The next way he was born again was when a person, when a man was ordained a rabbi, and this was done at 30 years old, the person was said to be born again. You know, when a man was ordained, 
he was born again. So Nicodemus, we know, was a rabbi. So he was born again for the third time. And the fourth way that Nicodemus was born again is that because Nicodemus was the head of a yeshiva or Jewish learning academy or a seminary, a yeshiva, and he would, uh, so a head of a yeshiva would uh, head the training and ordination of uh, rabbis. And the reason we know that Nicodemus was a, um, uh, the head of a yeshiva was because in Hebrew, it, a lot of times the commentators don't catch it, and even the English translations don't catch it. In Hebrew, if you're a rabbi, it says, it's, it says rav, which means rav is like a rabbi. But if you're a rabban, that means the rabbi. So when Jesus said to him, you're the rabbi in Israel, that's what he was talking about. His position was uh, the head of an academy. So that's how we know. So in other words, Nicodemus was born again, and when you become the head of academy, and that happens about the age of 50 or so, uh, you are born again for the fourth time. And there is no other way to be born again in Pharisaical teaching, in Judaism at that time. So you could see what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus had nowhere to go with this new birth that Jesus was speaking about. In his mind, Nicodemus was already born again, born again, born again, born again. That's it. There is no more born again. What do you want from my life? You know? So that's why he said, what do I have to do? Crawl back in my mother's womb? What do you want from my life? You know? I'm putting here in, I put that in Brooklyn vernacular. You know, it's like, like that. Yeah, I, I was raised in Brooklyn, so I, I forgive me. Is what I, <laughs> uh, out here, that's what I feel like. Whenever I meet someone, I almost have to apologize. As I meet them, hi, um, my New York sense of humor, just forgive me about that. And I'll be insulting you in the next 30 minutes or something. So sorry about that, you know. So Nicodemus, in his mind, had nowhere to go. In his mind, he's already born again. Every way a Jewish person can be born again. All six ways, I'm born again. Uh, four, four ways out of the six, I can be born again, I'm born again. Now, what you have to understand is that born again to the Pharisees had nothing to do with what the born again that Jesus was talking about. Because born again that Jesus was talking about was being born of the Holy Spirit. And in the Pharisees' mind, there was no... This was being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In the Pharisee mind, it was more like turning over a new leaf or a new phase in your life, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you, you're, the person is leaving the old behind. He's, he's a new person in that way. And marriage is a good example. Uh, the day you get married, I remember the day I got married, I was like, the day before, I was single. Okay, I was engaged, but I was single. And before that, I was not engaged and single, single. And now, uh, how many of you have this memory? You wake up uh, after the honeymoon and you go to sleep and, uh, and you wake up and little... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm married. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the, if I'm the only one who had a... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm married. I'm married! I'm married! Oh, yeah, I'm married. Okay. Now, but, but my, my main point is that, is that there, before I was married, there was kind of a single me. And now there's a, a new me. You know, there's a married me. There's me, and there's you, and there's us. So it's a real new... I'm a, kind of a new person. So you could see... Uh, what the uh, Pharisees was talking about. Yeah, in a sense, you're kind of a new person. You're born again in that sense when you get married. You could understand that. But again, this is in the physical realm. I mean, I realize there's a spiritual element to marriage, but it has nothing, it, it's not uh, the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual element between uh, the two people. Uh, but anyhow, so remember, I showed how the Pharisees believed that, except for rare ex exceptions, all Jewish people are going to enter the world to come. And Judaism didn't entertain the thought that Jewish people would need to repent and become regenerate in Pharisaism in order to enter the kingdom. They thought it was a given, right? So here Jesus is saying these things, which is throwing Nicodemus off. John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, the question is, how could I be born again? How could I be born? Can a man enter into his mother's womb the second time? You know, 
Um, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. So when Jesus made this statement, he was rejecting a fundamental Pharisaic doctrine that all of Israel will enter into the world to come. And look, even in modern times, as many people believe in God these days, a lot of people believe that our default setting is that everyone's going to heaven. Unless you commit some atrocious, terrible act, uh, then, you know, that's questionable. But other than that, we're all going to heaven. Is that true? Is that not according to Jesus? Hey, listen, if it were up to me, if I were making the shots, calling the shots, it'd be true. That makes sense. Doesn't that make sense? You live a good life. Okay, you're not perfect, but you don't rob banks. You don't murder people. You don't... And you get in. You're, you're, in you're, you're in heaven, right? You're going, to be, uh, you're going to be okay. Well, that makes sense to me, but the it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what Jesus says. It matters what the scriptures say. So every modern person believes this, or so many modern people believe this. If there is a God, I'm going to heaven. That's the default setting. It's not true. Just before Nicodemus meets Jesus in John chapter 2, 23 to 25, it says, while he was in Jerusalem at the feast, the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now, verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man, or in mankind, or in men. Jesus did not entrust himself to people. Why? Because modern or ancient times, human nature has remained fallen. And so whatever a person's ethnicity, their status in life, their gender, Jew or Gentile, uh, this new birth that Jesus is speaking of is necessary to, to step into a relationship with God. And it's the cause of being, uh, going to heaven. It's the cause, being born again is the cause of entering the kingdom, right? Now, one Jewish method of teaching at this time, and it still is actually, is going from the known to the unknown. So the known in Judaism uh, in Jesus' day was the term born again. So that's, Jesus used the term born again. But that term did not imply uh, a spiritual rebirth. Uh, it was just a simile for different physical types of uh, births. Uh, you know, new life. It's kind of like a, a new beginning, like ordination or marriage or position. You ever work so hard for a position? It takes you five years. It takes you 15 years. Maybe it takes you 20 years. You finally get a new position. You know, it's a great feeling. You work for it so hard, and now you've got that position. You, you kind of feel like you were born again. You know, it's just, it feels great. You have this great uh, feeling of accomplishment. So all of these things are new beginnings. Uh, they may be challenging. You know, they may be great milestones, but they are no more spiritually transforming um, than a New Year's resolution that you may make. And don't get me wrong, if you made a New Year's resolution and you're losing weight, that's wonderful, that's great. But uh, what Jesus was speaking of was qualitatively different uh, type of life transformation. It was a change in the spiritual realm caused by the Spirit of God whose transformation is radically different than the born-again experiences uh, that the Pharisees were talking about. This isn't just a new beginning of our old self, right? This is... Jesus was talking about a new beginning of a new self because the Holy Spirit of God who lives eternally with God uh, it comes to us and comes uh, his spirit engulfs our spirit. I'm not even sure how to put the, this, but the born-again uh, relationship is a new one. It's a life-transforming one through the Holy Spirit of God and not something that humans do. So this is a divine thing, you know. So Jesus is teaching them from the term, the concept uh, the term born again, 
and he's now taking that term that, that Nicodemus is familiar with and he's putting it, he's putting it into what they're not for, what Nicodemus is not familiar with. So that, that's what's happening here. So being physically born of water, uh, mean, meaning uh, being uh, born of water means being physically born is not enough. One had to be born spiritually, born again spiritually. <clears throat> So this born-again originates from heaven and not from earth, as the Pharisaical born-again did. And so all this is to say that a person has to have both a physical birth, a, a born of water, and a spiritual birth, born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit of God, that is to say, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the physical birth does not automatically mean that you're born into a spiritual birth. Even though you may be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that doesn't mean anything. That's, just, that's physical. So now... John chapter uh, uh, three, well, chapter uh, verse six and seven I covered, but flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So again, flesh birth gives birth to flesh. We're all born into the fallen, our fallen natures, and spirit gives birth to spirit. We need uh, the spirit of God uh, to be born again. And then the question Nicodemus has is, how can this be? How could this be? Nicodemus asked. How can a person be born again spiritually? What, essentially what he's asking is, what's the mechanics of this? How does this all work? You know? So Jesus answers, and he says, and this is 14, uh, John chapter 3, 14, 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now this story is uh, from the book of Numbers, Numbers uh, 4 through 9. Uh, this is when the people of Israel were... Uh, wandering the desert for 40 years. They were trekking along, and it says, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. I could even hear it as, as I'm listening. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Well, he wasn't messing around there, right? God is not messing around. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned, and we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will make the snakes go away from us. So Moses prayed to the Lord, uh, for the people rather, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it, look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and whenever anyone was bitten by, the, by a snake, he looked at the bronze pole and lived. So what Jesus is showing is that this is a two-step process, this being born again, this new birth. The first step is God's initiative. God takes the initiative by sending his son into the world uh, to die for our sins. Um, Jesus is crucified. He dies for our sins. He's buried. He's raised in three days. And it says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning his death on the cross. So this first step... Good news. This first step, God provides. We don't have to do anything. There's nothing we can do. So God sends His Son into the world to die for our sins. He's lifted up on the cross. The second step, the first step was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins, but it was not sufficient because each individual has the human responsibility to believe or place their faith in the Son, to believe in, to trust in, to hold on to, or hold on to dear life, to have a, a type of conviction type of belief. Not just belief, belief. Because remember, at the end of 
chapter 2 and talked about people believing him because they saw the miracles. That wasn't that type of belief. They didn't have like a born-again belief where it was more a solid belief. Um, so, 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 so each one, and now, so when the people got bit by snakes, the, the Bible says that they looked on the, uh, the snake, the bronze snake that Moses put up on the pole, and they looked at it, and you're supposed to, and the rabbis say that they looked at it like really intent, like they were looking at God. You know, I mean, not, not that the snake was God, but they were looking at it with a certain desperation, a certain intensity, a certain conviction. They weren't just like, okay, I'll look at the snake. No, no, their life depended on it. Like, I'm looking, God, you see me? I'm looking at the snake, you know, kind of like that. They were really focused. So now we have uh, those two steps are, are repeated in a more clear way. It says, uh, 3.16, uh, that famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his own, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here you have that same two-step. God did the work. He sent his Son to die for our sins. But the second step is whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It wasn't enough. You know, some churches teach that if uh, God sent uh, the Son into the world to die for us, and then so everyone is saved. Everyone has a relationship with God because God uh, had, uh, uh, had Jesus uh, die on the cross. That's not what the Scripture says. It's God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, that's the condition, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. They say, oh, see that? Uh, God, God sent him to, con- to save the world. Yeah, but the next verse is, whoever believes in him, in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Um, so you look at that snake, uh, and, and that's the antidote. In this case, you believe in Jesus, and that is the antidote for our sins. And there's other examples of this in the Old Testament uh, and the one that comes to mind is the people of Israel during the Exodus itself. I'm going to wrap it up now. And during the Exodus itself, the people uh, were told in order to avoid the plague that was coming, that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, to take a lamb. And this is kind of strange because when I was a kid, it was like, wait a minute. Every year we do Passover. And I would think, well, this is really strange. You're supposed to take a lamb and you take the lamb to the frame of your door, you know, the, the door frame, and you slay the lamb by slicing the throat. The blood of the lamb drains to the bottom of the threshold. And the bottom of the threshold actually had a built-in basin uh, in Egypt. And the reason they had that is because it's a dusty place. You put a little water there. It's not a big basin. It's just an indentation. You put water there, you can kind of clean around. So that's why they had these. So the, the blood would gather in this indentation, this built-in basin. And this is the words, and you can check me out, Exodus uh, 12, 21 and following. It says you take some hyssop, you use it as a sponge, you dip the hyssop into the blood, and then it says, now in Hebrew, some versions say, place the blood or put the blood. No, the Hebrew word is to touch or to strike the top and the two side posts. This is the sign of Israel's redemption at the time of Egypt. Now, every year I would think to myself, wait a minute, uh, was God trying to say something here? <laughs> now, I don't think that Moses knew that the Messiah was going to come and die that way, but I also knew, as a kid even, I knew that Jesus had uh, a crown of thorns, so his head was bleeding, and then, of course, his arms were crucified, uh, on both sides, so they were, he was bleeding from there, and of course the feet were nailed together, bleeding from the bottom. Uh, very strange. But the, uh, but the important thing is, is that the animal was sacrificed, so that when they sacrificed the animal, was that enough? So let's say a Hebrew slave sacrifices the lamb, 
and he does not put the blood of the lamb on the door, he doesn't apply the blood of the lamb on the door, would that be enough? No. No, because God said specifically, it's not just the sacrifice, it's actually putting the blood of the lamb on the door. It's a, the application. That's when God passed over you in judgment, right? So your firstborn would be spared. So uh, that's, the, that's the thing that, uh, again, you see there's two steps. It's the, it's the sacrifice, and then it's the application of the blood. And in a sense, we have to like, apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of our heart for God to pass over us in the coming judgment. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Um, should I say a word of prayer? Okay, I'll say a word of prayer then. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for who you are, for your love, for your caring. You did not leave us orphans, Lord. You sent your son to die for us. Lord, you provided the lamb. Father, we have the responsibility of believing on him, of trusting him, of clinging on to him. Lord, thank you for that, and thank you for giving us that ability. We pray, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.